1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 14 of Jack. It is Sunday, March 5th, 2023. I'm your host, Allison Gill.
0: And I'm Andy McCabe. Today, we're going to touch briefly on a DOJ response to Trump's claims of absolute immunity in civil suits for January 6th. And we're going to talk about some of the clashes that can happen between investigators in the FBI and prosecutors in the DOJ, including clashes they had in the Trump documents case as reported by the Washington Post this week. And before we dive into that, maybe if I can touch on that just for a second. Um, So this is something that is very common that prosecutors on one side of the street and agents on the other side of the street, and that street is Pennsylvania Avenue, by the way, (laughs) they don't always see everything in the exact same way. The typical way that this... these conflicts or this tension kind of shows its ugly head is when the agents usually want to push the more aggressive, more forward-leaning, more, um, you know, accessing evidence and witnesses through compulsion, like compulsory process, like search warrants and, and subpoenas and things like that. And the prosecutors usually argue for a little bit more subtlety, going about things a little, maybe a little more slowly but getting access to that sort of material through consent uh, agreements. Perfect example of this is the Hillary Clinton email investigation. In that case, we knocked heads about this quite a few times, but it just so happened that in, I think, if I remember correctly, in each instance when there was a computer or a, or an old server that we needed to get access to to examine we were able to get access to that material through consent agreements. It didn't actually have to serve search warrants. It wasn't until the very end of the case where we were uh, arguing with uh, Hillary Clinton's defense attorneys about access to one particular laptop that we actually threatened to go forward with a search warrant. And then, lo and behold, they agreed uh, to let us examine it. So that's a good example of a case where that happened uh, frequently. The weird difference here, AG, is we're seeing the exact opposite of that typical uh, fight between DOJ and FBI. According to the reporting, the agents were the ones that were arguing for, let's slow down, let's take the less controversial, confrontational approach. And the prosecutors were allegedly pushing for, let's go faster and let's demand access.
1: Hmm. Yeah. And, and let's just start by Letting me read the lead from the Washington Post. Months of disputes between Justice Department prosecutors and FBI agents over how to best try to recover classified documents from Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago club and residence led to a tense showdown, quote unquote, near the end of July last year, according to four people, four people familiar with the discussions. And we should talk a little bit about the folks that are writing this article, because People who listen to The Daily Beans and Jack and Clean Up on All 45, some of my other podcasts, know that I can sometimes take umbrage with Devlin Barrett's reporting. But Carol Lennig is also on this story. Uh, and uh, there are a couple of other contributors uh, to, to this piece as well. And they include, let me look at it, the byline here, um, Perry Stein and Aaron Davis. But there are some, we're going to go through the points of this article, but there is, Andy, a little bit of a Devlin Barrett flair, uh, very ap- apparent in, in this article. Wouldn't you agree?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I certainly have, um, well, I have my own concerns about Devlin Barrett. Most of them are based on <laughs> some really negative interactions that I had with him years ago. Um, uh, so I won't, I won't bore our listeners with going through that whole story again. But let me just say that it's been my experience with him that Devlin has, um, I think he has a tendency to really enhance the most newsy or kind of uh, hysterical aspect of a story by really kind of, um, you know, portraying things in one way rather than a balanced way. And so that's always something, you know, we've talked before on this podcast about always consider your sources, always like keep in the back of your mind who you're when you're reading a piece, who wrote it, what's what's, uh, you know, what sort of experiences have you had with them, and their pieces in the past. So that I think that's just a good cautionary note in, you know, really going deep on this article.
1: Yeah. And one of the first things I noticed is that the article repeatedly referred to the legally executed search warrant of August 8th on Mar-a-Lago as a raid. Now, you know, generally, when we speak colloquially about these things, like they raided Rudy Giuliani's house, they raided Mar-a-Lago, da-da-da. But I think it's very important to note that this is not a raid. And that use of that term was brought up in hearings before the 11th Circuit, uh, where Trump's lawyers continually referred to it uh, as a raid, uh, where, where... The judges in the 11th circuit, the very conservative judges in the 11th circuit were like, you should probably stop saying that. And, you know, he continued to use that word and then apologized again. It was almost like one of those, you know, oh, well, withdraw my comment, your honor, you know, type of a situation. So I, I did notice that repeatedly. It's referred to. Uh, as a raid throughout this article, but there's some interesting and important breaking news in here that first of all, they talk about uh, the subpoena that went out in May of last year, and that we learned through this article that in early spring, the Department of Justice prosecutors wanted to do a surprise search of Mar-a-Lago. But because of the FBI uh, officials, there were two FBI officials and we'll talk about them in a second. Because of some pushback, they said, "Let's do a subpoena first, uh, and let's try to do this in a less combative way." Uh, you know, and, and I, on one hand, I don't think optics should be considered when we make these kinds of uh, judgment calls, particularly when we would do it differently for a former president than we would for any, like Petraeus, for example, any other uh, government official. But also I just I, I just don't I think that's politicizing really what you're trying to depoliticize most of all when these when these really um, sort of sensitive t- types of searches uh, come up. So that was a very interesting bit. And I, I think in the end, it, it turns out that that s- subpoena now has added a layer of due process that makes the crime of obstruction almost unimpeachable here, uh, you know, that from a DOJ perspective, from a prosecution's perspective, meaning, look, we, we went through NARA, dealt with him for 16 months on a friendly basis, then the FBI, then we did a subpoena, then we got
0: surveillance tape. It's just it sort of adds a layer of, of due process. Do you, do you agree? I do agree. And in, in this case, that kind of uh, course of dealing, as they say in contract law, Um, of this, this uh, escalation of means to try to recover sensitive classified documents, I think really goes to the, uh, adds to the strength of the case now. But let's remember, um, long time, a lot of reach out by NARA to try to get this stuff back. Finally, they get back 15 boxes in January. They look at it, they immediately realize there's reason to believe that there's more down at Mar-a-Lago. And then in April the Trump lawyers go to court to try to block the FBI's ability to review the documents that have already been given back to NARA. So it's at that point that DOJ realizes, holy cow, we've got a problem (laughs) on our hands. This is a very aggressive move to make. It's like legally nonsensical in my mind, but an aggressive move to make and indicates that they may be trying to hide things from DOJ and from the FBI. So That's why the prosecutors immediately start thinking in April and May, we need to go in there with a search warrant on no notice to recover national security material that might still be on that premises. And it is with that kind of understanding of the brewing hostility between the two sides that the FBI starts cautioning, wait, wait, let's use a subpoena first. So again, not an unreasonable thing for the FBI to caution about. And I think in the long run, it probably place to the strength of the case, so not a bad thing. But boy, it, it continues to go a bit off the rails from there,
1: right? Because when we get to this confrontation in July that we're going to talk about in a second, in a meeting with the head of the FBI Washington field office and the, some of the you know top DOJ officials for NatSec and, and other uh, counter intel, et cetera, um, where you know Jay Brat says during this thing. Um, that, you know, they are very concerned that sensitive docs were still at Mar-a-Lago and that they could, quote, be destroyed or spirited away if they didn't act soon. And so they started feeling that pressure back in May, um, as you know, in the spring, and then in June when they executed the search warrant. And then as they continued to get more evidence, because apparently what happened here was the, the FBI was saying, hey, why don't we just work cooperatively with Trump's lawyers? They signed a thing saying everything got handed over. We tend to believe them, right? The FBI yeah. agents who spoke to Devlin Barrett, uh, uh, you know, these sources said that the FBI t- tended to believe uh, that the Trump lawyers and the DOJ prosecutors were like, we don't. And, uh, and so, you know, we are going to, you know, we're going to make moves based on what we think versus what you think. And apparently that's what sort of fueled this confrontation about whether or not to have a surprise search, whereas the FBI wanted to sort of go in. Let's talk talk about the FBI Washington field office guy, because his suggestion was, he basically said, if you want a surprise search warrant, you're going to have to order me to do it, because I want to do it more cooperatively, is sort of what the feeling I'm getting here.
0: That's a really um, provocative thing to say in a meeting like this, to just, you know, put your foot down and say, I'm not going to, I will, I so disagree with what you're proposing that I will not do it unless directly ordered to do so by my own uh, superiors. Um, and, you know, again, this is as reported by apparently two people uh, said that to Devlin Barrett uh, or the, the authors of this piece, as it, as it appears here. Other people kind of, I guess, caution that he he didn't take quite such a strident position. Um, it's it's really, really fascinating. I mean, that's, that does not have, I mean, as, as kind of heated as some of these discussions get, you know, we all understand that we're all operating on the same footing and that what we're talking about doing is entirely lawful options. Um, and so to say, absolutely, I'm not going to do what you're suggesting almost carries with it the suggestion that you are... You are telling me to do something that I think is improper or unauthorized or what have you, which is, is really uh, pretty dramatic. I, I think we should also point out here,, um, Allison, that the, according to the article, the bureau was willing to accept uh, the way they were treated by the Trump's attorneys when they went down in May, served the subpoena, and of course were allegedly handed a small envelope full of some classified documents. And also at that time, they were shown the storage room in the basement or wherever that is, where boxes of records were kept. But as we know from the reporting at that time, they were not allowed to go into the room and examine the contents of any of those boxes. So with that fact, which they didn't have in this article... Um, I think it puts that's the FBI's uh, willingness to accept what the Trump attorneys had basically given them on that day uh, is really curious to me. Because coming away from that exchange, if, if Trump's attorneys were being so forthcoming and honest and, you know, you had faith in the search they had done, and then they show you a room filled with boxes of other records that they very, very adamantly will not let you look at. They won't let you open the boxes. They won't even let you take a sample. I don't know about you, but I come away from that thinking, okay, there's more here. They're clearly hiding something, and so it makes the FBI's willingness to accept those representations from Trump's a- attorneys um, even, I think, more questionable under the circumstances. But you know, at least the circumstances that we we are hearing about in this article.
1: Yeah, and it seems you know along these timelines here, though that the that this. The... The DOJ, the prosecutors were like, no, we, we, you shouldn't trust these Trump lawyers. Just take our word for it. Let's go in and try to get more evidence. And then they did. They got the subpoena for the surveillance footage. They got some of the testimony, witness testimony from, you know, Walt Nata, for example um, uh, who not a good witness, I think was the
0: the joke you made (laughs) last week. Taking me right back to dad joke. (laughs)
1: I'm Um, so
0: satisfied with that. I'm I'm just so proud of myself. It
1: was very good. We named the whole episode that just, (laughs) just for you. But, uh, you know, that, that whole sort of idea. And then, you know, of course, it sort of became, well, let's make an agreement. We'll go in, we won't notify them, but we want to do it when Trump isn't there and we want to do it in khakis and polos and we want to do it, uh, we want to give the Secret Service a, a couple hours heads up and, and there was an agreement to go in. So, you know, it was resolved and uh, they went in, but I think the thing that bothers me the most about this article, and we need we should talk about this because it's the... It's the when they talk about when the FBI, you know, from from the sources, talks about the optics of of tr- of going into a former president's home, meaning we should treat a former president differently than we would treat anyone else, and that is something that I don't think is a good way to look at stuff. But you know, there's they, you know, FBI is going to be able to have candid conversations about this. But this is the product of people being afraid of ending up like what happened to you?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this like hits on what I think is the most significant part of this. And and we know this from a bunch of different statements in the article. You know, there are references to the fact that FBI agents were concerned about political backlash. They were concerned about, you know, doing anything uh, that might lead to a OIG investigation or congressional oversight. They talk about the crossfire hurricane hangover syndrome, right? That this, this kind of black cloud of suspicion and attacks that the FBI has sustained uh, since the uh, Crossfire Hurricane investigation. And, you know, for the last several years, I've been really worried that I hope, I hope, and I trust that they're not doing this, but I hope that my former colleagues are not becoming um, cowed by, that, uh, by the horrible way that so many of us were treated by the former administration and people on the Hill and many, many of who, whom are still there, um, you just hope that they aren't pulling back from the aggressive, forward-leaning edge that the FBI typically occupies um, because they're afraid of the backlash, personally and professionally. Um, so this story really highlights that in, I think, um, a very concerning way. And, you know, Allison, I've always maintained, and I felt very strongly this way back in 2016 uh, and and 2017, really, when making decisions after Jim Comey got fired, deciding to open up the individual case on Donald Trump, deciding to really kind of, um, you know, pressure Rod Rosenstein to appoint a special counsel. You know, my feeling at that time was um, we knew that there would be lots of negative feedback and backlash, whatever you want to call it, on us for taking these steps. But I felt very strongly that it was our obligation to investigate the concerning information that had come our way about possible national security threats and possible criminal activity. When you decide not to investigate, well, let me back up. When you, the decision to investigate a political figure is not politicizing your work. You know, in the FBI, that's part of your job. That's part of our jurisdiction, public corruption. You have to, some sometimes under some circumstances, investigate political people. That doesn't make your work political. What makes your work political is making decisions about how you're going to work those cases or how you're not going to work them because you're afraid of political fallout and political feedback. That, to me, is injecting politics into the way you do your work, and I don't think that's um, advisable or or acceptable under any circumstances. You have to be prepared to go forward to the full extent of your authority and the laws that you are investigating, and not be worried. You know they always, they always say without fear or favor. It's really true. You got to not. You got to put those concerns aside and be willing to accept. Um, you know, the tough times that can come as a result of it. Nobody likes that, but at the highest level positions in the FBI, you better believe and you better be willing to get fired for doing your job well, if that's the price of doing your job well.
1: Yeah, and that's why I push back on a lot of people who criticize Merrick Garland for appointing a special counsel saying that that is politicizing. The act of not wanting to look political is inherently politicization. I disagree. I think politicization is when you're looking at the Washington field office FBI head guy saying, I don't like the optics of going in uh, to a former president's home. That is politicizing, I think, by lacking to, you know, by not wanting to do something. Although, you know, we can explain it with the crossfire hurricane hangover. But for those brave People who went ahead with Crossfire Hurricane, uh, despite that sort of backlash, and knowing that it was coming, you know, hats off. That's that's hero shit right there. But with regard to I mean, with regard to special counsel. Yeah, it's doing your job.
0: It's doing your job.
1: But with regard to special counsel, Jack Smith, I don't think you could say that he's avoiding politicization by pulling back, by appointing somebody who's the head of the former head of the pin the public integrity unit, which is dedicated to investigating political, highly sensitive political shit. So I just wanted to kind of bring that up. I think that there's a huge difference there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what the special counsel regulations are for, right? It's like you acknowledge that you're the investigation, if you're the AG, you acknowledge the investigation you're doing is, has an unavoidably political, um, you know, side to it. You're investigating a political figure. And so you bring in a special counsel simply to convey to the American people that you are doing this in the most independent way possible. So it's really, um, it's really to commute it's not because a current US attorney couldn't do that investigation. It's because you're trying to communicate like, hey, we're doing everything we possibly Mm -hmm. can to distance this investigation from the AG. And let's, let me hit one more point here before we move on. I wanna be perfectly clear the end of the day, those FBI agents went into Mar-a-Lago and the people who had to approve that approved it and were willing to take whatever comes of it. And so I, my hat is mm-hmm. off to them. They, at the end of the day, no matter what happened in this meeting, no matter how accurate or close this reporting is to the conversations that actually took place, um, they did the, they did what they needed to do and they're moving forward with this case. It's now in the right hands. Um, so I, I my hat is off to them. It's they're going to have to weather a storm as a result of it. They're in the middle of a storm now. They've already been accused of planting evidence, which is absolutely ridiculous. I have I have no concern whatsoever that that happened. That's just a standard Donald Trump uh, defensive posture. But yeah, it's already started for them. Now they're dealing with this House uh, Judiciary Special Select Committee <laughs> to investigate the weaponization of the FBI. I mean, here you go, boys. This is exactly what you were worried about. But you know what? You did the right thing, and that's all that matters.
1: Yeah, and that committee is just a laughing stock, so don't worry. Yeah. Um, the last bit of news that I caught from this article was that they said that uh, Jay Bratt, by the way, who's, you know, NATSEC DOJ, uh, in late fall, October, uh, he and his team began sketching out evidence of obstruction of justice with the understanding they were ready to make a charging decision. Uh, at that point, uh, after the you know, after the search and everything went down. Uh, And that, of course, is when Merrick Garland came in and said, look, fellas, I'm thinking of appointing a special counsel here because Donald Trump's about to announce for president and he's running against uh, the guy who appointed me. So now all of that, that outline, there might have been potential prosecution memos, uh, drafts uh, written up for obstruction of justice in the documents case. All of that is in Jack Smith's hands now, who's been very aggressive, about, you know, with his contempt stuff, with questioning the two PIs who uh, searched everything, getting a c- compelling order to, to hand over their names to, um, you know, uh, even mo- most recently uh, trying to assert uh, crime fraud over attorney-client privilege for Corcoran's. Uh, testimony. So uh, very aggressively going after this this case from what Jay Brat was able to put together before the special counsel was named. So and that's what we're doing here.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know that the the meetings you have um, Assistant AG Olson, who's the head of the National Security Division. You have Jay Bratt, who's the guy that's in charge overlooking this case specifically. You also have George Toskas, who is a longtime attorney in the National Security Division. Uh, at DOJ, um, and a, a, a total veteran, somebody who's been there for a long, you know, long enough that, you know, is very highly respected by agents and prosecutors alike. I can only imagine what that meeting was like at DOJ. Kind of surprises me that Paula Bate, who's the current uh, deputy director, wasn't involved. I know that one of the decisions went to him after the fact because he wasn't there. Uh, but this is a, you know, a, a powwow at that level over an issue as controversial as this. Um, that sounds like it was a pretty intense moment. I know all these folks. I know Steve D'Antuono. Um, Steve kind of comes from more of an intel background inside the FBI. Um, and, you know, at like I said, at the end of the day, I think they did the right thing. It's a little concerning that they were so uh, reticent to move forward aggressively. And I wonder and worry about the reasons for that. Uh, but also, you know... Uh, uh, Anytime I see these re- accounts in the media of literally specific comments in a particular, that were allegedly made in a particular meeting uh, between, you know, over an issue like this, I always wonder, like, who is sharing this stuff with the devil and Barrett or anybody else? And the answer to that question is usually the same person who stands to benefit from this version of these events coming out in the paper. So this story does not really uh, shed a lot of glory on the FBI. It does make the Department of Justice look very good. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you have to, again, question your sources and wonder, like, what was the motivation uh, behind putting this thing out in the press, which would normally, you know— you're not you're not supposed to share details from private meetings like this with the with the media but it clearly happened here from multiple people uh, according to the authors which is a little concerning
1: yeah and uh, that will remain unknown that's right as we go forward so <laughs>
0: that's
1: right All right well we'll be right back we're going to take a quick break uh, and when we come back we're going to talk a little bit. Uh, about some more Department of Justice news about whether Donald can be sued civilly, uh, which isn't really in the purview of Jack Smith's investigations, but their footnote about criminal, uh, you know, mens rea in in this particular filing is. So we'll talk about that. And then we're going to answer some listener questions, too. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Uh
0: Welcome back. We have some other news from the DOJ about whether Donald has immunity in civil cases, but also a footnote about how that claim of immunity might impact the special counsel's criminal investigation into the former president for the attack on the Capitol on January 6.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, you'll remember last week Uh, Andy, we reported that it appeared Jack Smith was not only investigating the documents, not only investigating obstruction, not only investigating the fraudulent elector scheme, and not only investigating the finance part, right? The wire fraud case for possible defrauding donors, right? Wire fraud uh, for the big lie. But also that Jack Smith appears now to be investigating Trump's role in the physical attack on the Capitol. Now, separately, in the civil lawsuits filed by Capitol police officers in Blasingame v. Donald Trump, and uh, members of Congress in like Swalwell v. Donald yep. Trump, Benny Thompson also had a civil suit against Donald Trump, but withdrew that suit when he became chair of the One Six Committee. Um, all of the all of these different suits, civil cases, right, looking for looking for damages from Donald Trump, the courts actually asked the Department of Justice to weigh in on whether Donald enjoyed absolute immunity from civil lawsuits as the former president. Now, DOJ was loath to do this. They're like, oh, okay, give us till February 17th. Okay, <laughs> give us till, well, January 17th and February 21st. Okay, mm-hmm. make it March 2nd. They did not want to really weigh in on this, but they ended up doing it.
0: Yeah, they, they did. They, they ended up coming in and saying, in essence, that Trump does not enjoy absolute immunity from civil suits. Now, that is not relevant for the criminal prosecution, but DOJ did mention the criminal liability in one of the footnotes. Yep, yep. And it's footnote number one.
1: And it says, the absolute immunity at issue in this appeal concerns only a president's liability in private suit for damages. In addressing that question, the United States does not express any view regarding the potential criminal liability of any person for the events of January 6th, or acts connected with those events. The government also expresses no view on any other issues decided by the district court, including where plaintiffs have stated a valid claim for relief under Title 42 U.S. Code 1985, Section 1, or any other cause of action. And basically, that's the DOJ saying, you can sue Trump, But we aren't saying you have a valid claim. That's 42 U.S. Code 1985. That's what allows you to sue civilly for seditious conspiracy. Um, We're not saying you have a valid claim. We're just saying that you can. You could sue him. And we aren't telling you whether or not we think he can be indicted for it. Or anybody can be indicted for anything that happened on January 6th. That's right. And we'll cover this in depth on uh, the Cleanup on Aisle 45 pod next week. Because it mostly deals with civil claims, not the criminal liability. Uh, which is the special counsel's part, but we, want, you know, I wanted to point that footnote out about criminal liability.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's important because um, they they really went out of their way to make it clear that they weren't putting any <laughs> kind of obstacle in the path uh, between uh, Donald Trump and a potential indictment. So definitely relevant for our audience on that ground. So I'm uh, I'm glad we were able to squeeze that in. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very cool, too. And, you know, I mean, I just I thought it was
1: I was expecting this to be the decision because they basically said, look, you can't incite an insurrection and call it part of your job as president, which is what sort of they were hinting at when they came in and weighed in on the Mo Brooks certification for civil suit. Right. Mo Brooks wanted the Department of Justice to represent him in people suing him for his incitation of the insurrection on January 6th. And they came in and said, first of all, you were campaigning, bro. So that's not that's covered right. by your job. But then even if the court disagrees with our finding that you were campaigning, you can't uh, overthrowing the government cannot be part of your job in the government. <laughs> uh, and nor, And they said, and that is also true for any federal employee. And I was like, that is a shout out to Donald Trump right there yeah it certainly could be now we have the the official you know odd for civil suits only though i like how they were like no any other claims nothing criminal about anything for anyone that ever happened in the history of the universe just this you know very narrow thing that we're weighing in on um but you can hear their you know that they were just not wanted to do this but you can hear it in their voices but
0: that is their decision so yeah and it all comes down. It all, it all you know, um, comes from that determination of scope of duties, right? If, if, if you are being sued, even after you've left your position, I, I've been in this situation. I've been sued by people for, you, know, all kinds of crazy allegations about things that happened when I was Deputy Director, and you can go to the Department of Justice and say, hey, I'm being sued for things that I did within the scope of my authority, within the scope of my duties you know, you, um, DOJ, should represent me. And of course, if they do, then you get good representation for no cost. Um, Each one of those decisions is very individual, though they have this kind of uh, uh, catch-all ability to deny your request if they believe it is not in the interests of government. Which is why I'm still surprised
1: they took the E. Jean Carroll case at all.
0: That was really controversial. People are still um, kind of scratching their heads over it, but I think... You know, they thought that there was some sort of piece of presidential authority that they they were trying to defend there, which I, it's, I far be it for me to understand exactly what that was, but that was likely what was behind their decision. But in any case, it's always they have a lot of discretion to make these calls. And you kind of, as the person asking, you know, in the Mo Brooks example, as Mo Brooks, you're just kind of stuck with the answer they give you. So um, mm-hmm. interesting to see how those play out.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of that also had to do with decisions that were made by Barr, by previous Department of Justice, that, pr- that probably this Department of Justice was reluctant to overturn, uh, you know, I guess in... Not wanting to give itself a black eye. I, right. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, if something is wrong, I think it should be overturned. But, uh, you know, that's that's just me. By the way, yep. Andrew, we just got some breaking news uh, coming in from The Washington Post. We should cover federal prosecutors. Jack Smith, investigating efforts to overturn the election, have asked witnesses extensive questions about the actions of Rudy Giuliani, including where he got his information about alleged fraud. Uh, what he did in the days leading up to January 6th, and what he knew about the actions coming that day. That is according to people who have appeared in front of the federal grand jury. So that is some, you know, I guess some people coming forward talking about what they've been asked in the federal grand jury by Jack Smith.
0: This we've talked about a couple times, A.G. Uh, The prosecutors and the grand jurors are all bound by... um, court rule 6e which requires everything that's said in the grand jury to be maintained secret and not leaked the only person not bound by that is the witness so witnesses can come out and tell their lawyers or anybody else reporters or whoever what sort of questions they were asked now these questions about Rudy are totally predictable right of course they would ask those questions it is and they and and this a lot of this refers back to the essence of that potential fraud you knew these claims of a stolen election were baseless. You knew there was nothing to this, and yet you went out there and sold them like you believed it. You made money off of that. You tried to, uh, you know, you tried to overturn the results of the election. That would be fraud against the government. Making money off of it could be fraud against uh, people who contributed those funds. So it really is a central piece of many of these investigations.
1: Yep. And then, of course, we know in the documents case, Trump lawyers are under scrutiny. The headline here is the 2024 race begins. Special counsel advances with a focus on Trump's lawyers. So we've got the Rudy Giuliani and the one six stuff. And then in the documents case, we've got Corcoran, Christina Bob, Banal, Alina Habba. <laughs> Uh, Epstein Uh, you know I mean you name the lawyer everybody but Chris Kies and Jim Trusty I think have been dragged in and asked questions so these
0: guys should be getting hazard pay at this
1: point (laughs) you should be like
0: there should be A retainer plus a, you know, establishing a defense fund for yourself if you de- decide to uh, represent Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's exactly why Chris Kies was like, you're going to need to give me $3 million cash up front and uh, then, we, <laughs> then we can have a chat.
0: And then we'll talk.
1: All right. So, what kind of listener questions do we have this week? By the way, we're we're moving the listener questions portion of the show to the end of the show, so uh, we can maybe if we have additional time, we can answer more questions. I thought that that would be a more you know Andrew and I we talked about it. We thought it'd be a more flexible way to get in some more listener queries. So, what do we have this week, sir?
0: There you go. So, I've got two for you. Both of these are pretty quick. So, I think but I think they hit on. Um, good issues that I think most people are wondering about. So the first one is from Bill, and Bill says, Will immunity granted to witnesses by the Georgia prosecutors carry over to a potential federal prosecution? Thanks for that, Bill. And it really cuts at a uh, kind of long-known legal theory, which is like the two sovereigns theory. And it's kind of the same reason— it gets back to, uh, I think we had a discussion about this in the context of uh, double jeopardy. So in double jeopardy, if you are placed in jeopardy, put on trial for an offense by the federal courts, uh, a state court can still come in and put you on trial for the same thing. There is no double jeopardy because those two governments are separate sovereigns and they're the acts of one don't bar the uh, acts of another. The same would be true here. So If the federal prosecutors wanted you to testify as a witness and maybe if they end up indicting Rudy Giuliani or Donald Trump or any of these other people who were allegedly the subjects of that uh, special grand jury investigation, if they wanted you to testify as a witness and they were willing to give you immunity in return for your testimony, that would not stop the federal government from coming after you as a defendant in a criminal matter. So, and what about civil suits?
1: One. What if somebody was given immunity to testify in a civil suit? Because we've seen this happen where that that, that testimony can kind of, or a congressional uh, immunity, for example. We're looking at Iran Contra. Uh, I'm thinking this is yes. the thing that, that can impact. Those other federal sorts of immunity, congressional federal immunity and civil federal immunity can actually make it difficult to get those answers in front of a grand jury, but state, not so much.
0: Yeah. So um, those two examples, Iran-Contra and maybe a federal civil case, because that's all has to do with the federal government. There are aspects to the granting immunity that might bar certain actions in, you know, if you were granted immunity in a civil case, that might have an impact on uh, future uh, criminal prosecutions. Now, this I'm being pretty general about this. There are different types of immunity that you can get. There are different scopes of immunity. You get there's transactional immunity, all kinds of different immunity. So it's not a very limited you know, it's use, a very yeah. yeah. fact specific determination. But across different governments, state to federal, uh, you don't have those sorts of uh, obstacles. All right, cool. And right. I think
1: I think we have time for one more.
0: Let's go one more, and this is this is a good one, just because I like her uh, choice of words here. This one comes to us from Bethany, and Bethany says, "What are the odds that Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, and the other slime balls at Fox News get subpoenaed by Jack Smith?" Okay, slime balls is her word choice, but you know, um, m- mad respect.
1: That's you, kind, I, you know. That's a very kind. Uh- <laughs>
0: You just don't see slime balls a lot, but it's, uh, it's vivid. So what are the odds <laughs> that the other, any other slime balls at Fox News get subpoenaed by Jack Smith following news from the Dominion lawsuit that Fox News coordinated with the White House and lied about the election? Well, Bethany, you're probably not going to like my answer. I think the odds of them getting subpoenaed for that sort of stuff are pretty low. Because even though their comments or the fact that they put people like Mike Lindell on their show and let him spout off things that they all apparently knew were false, even though that might lead to some civil liability in the Dominion case, it's unlikely that it would be connected to, you know, evidential um, information in the criminal case. And also their, you know... uh, they're, they're, the federal government is really kind of careful about not going after reporters for anything that they do in the context of their reporting uh, function mm-hmm. and like what they refer to as le- legitimate news gathering mm-hmm. uh, activities. Now, okay, I know everybody sit down. I know they you're you know, jumping out of your seats and spilling your coffee, as I'm referring to Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson is engaged in legitimate news gathering activity. But yes, that's what they do, even if you don't approve of the way they go about it. Um, So I find it to be unlikely that they would be subpoenaed. Now, if for some reason the government came across information that, let's say, Sean Hannity had a particular private conversation with Donald Trump, the substance of which Jack Smith believes might lead to relevant evidence in the criminal case, that's the sort of thing that... In this example, Sean Hannity could uh, be looking at a subpoena for, but not That's so what much I was the things they say on TV.
1: That's yeah. what I was thinking. Any evidence that could be relevant to, again, proving that Donald Trump defrauded donors because he knowingly lied to them about there being election fraud. If there's yeah. any communications with Fox News that can... Add to that totality of the evidence, because we already have 800 people telling him that there was no fraud. We already have the Berkeley research firm after doing a thorough investigation telling him that there's no fraud. Now we've got Fox News admitting to each other that there was no fraud. But that's sort of irrelevant to the Trump case unless there was communications with directly or indirectly, you'd have to prove indirectly, became yeah. directly with Donald Trump about the fact, hey, we know that you, you lost the election or that uh, they yeah. acknowledge that he did. But yeah, that's a really good question, you know, because as I would like to see, but I think they're going to have to pay uh, a pretty hefty dollar amount, uh, <laughs> pursue it to this Dominion defamation case. So they're not it's totally a, off the
0: hook. It's a fascinating case. The, re- the revelations over the last two weeks have been amazing. Um, and these cases are so, so rare, so hard to prove. It's so hard to go after a news organization for defamation. But man, this might be the case that gets over the <laughs> hurdle. It, it, it's looking stronger than, uh, than anyone certainly I've ever seen. So we'll see.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely see. All right. Thank you so much uh, for listening to Jack at the Podcast. We appreciate you. We appreciate the patrons. We appreciate everybody who's listening. You can get this podcast free wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we will be back next week with whatever news they throw at us between now and then, with regard to the special counsel investigation, do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here, Andy?
0: No, it's been uh, it's been a good week, and uh, I look forward to talking to you next week about what whatever comes out of this investigation between now and then.
1: Yeah, totally. And if you have any questions you want to send to us, you could send them to hello at MullerSheWrote.com and put Jack in the subject line, and we will answer uh, we will answer your questions. Uh, we look forward to it. So until next week, I've been Allison Gill,
0: and I'm Andy McCabe, and this is
1: Jack. MSW Media.